brought my big book just looking for some street cred here. <laughs> Probably won't reference it at all, but, you know, I wanted to let you know I have one. My name is uh, Tommy T, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm thrilled to be here. And, uh, you know, before we get started, I definitely want to say some thank yous, because everybody has just been over the top. Uh, hospitable and nice, and uh, my new friend Marvin over there, I got my eyes on you, buddy. So, um, you know, but to uh, Joe and Mandy, uh, my wife would have corrected me too, don't worry about that, that's just something you girls do and we love you for it. And especially in public, we always love that. Uh, my wife's laughing hysterically in the back, so she does but, you know, you know what I think is amazing about Alcoholics Anonymous? Joe picked us up at the airport yesterday, and I think it was within the first two minutes we were talking about our families, and me and Joe were both not laughing. I don't want to make it sound like we're cold-hearted men, but we're talking about being deadbeat dads. <laughs> first two minutes of our conversation. That's not like an opening line in business or anything, you know. Uh, but the next line is, but God made all that right with Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the message we have to bring here today. You know, so I want to thank the committee and, and everybody that's been so hospitable. The first, the first few speakers that I heard were just over the top uh, awesome, so it's, I'm very proud to be a part of that and to join in. And uh, my man Josh in the back, it's important that you know Josh. Josh, raise your hand, Josh. So, so Josh is responsible for getting me down here. Josh and I were actually sobriety brothers. We shared a sponsor for a while. And if I tell that story later, I'm going to lose it up here, but we'll see how that goes. We'll see what God has for us. But uh, Josh asked me to come out here, and I was thrilled to do so. And, uh, you know, so if I should say anything that offends anybody tonight, uh, or my AA doesn't quite match up with the way you practice your principles, please tell Josh after the meeting. Because <laughs> I'm really sensitive. You're going to hurt my feelings. Josh can take it. So, my man. My man. And then there's a couple of guys in this audience that I'd like to acknowledge. Uh, they were all my sponsorship brothers for a long time, and I've never met them until tonight we went out and had dinner. Uh, we were on Zoom with a sponsor who was dying, and we went through that together uh, online. And uh, I love you guys. You know, we'll certainly with my wife back there and a few scattered throughout, but you know who you are. And I don't even think I remember all your names, so, I, you know, so let's keep it real. But uh, I wouldn't have made it through that without you guys, and I want you to know that. Uh, my sobriety date, I'm not going to say the great little thing that you guys say to everybody, like with sponsorship and God and AA. And, my sober date's April 8th, 1995. And uh, I didn't come in here willingly. I, I didn't come in here because things were good. Uh, was it sitting in, in, in my house, just hit the mega lottery, and, and I've got a trophy wife, and I said, hey, let me go hang out with those old guys in the church basement and find God. You know, it wasn't anything like that. Uh, I was not living what you would say is a good life. Uh, our first speaker, Joe, man, you know, he explained it. You know, we, live, we live like savages. We live like subhumans. Uh, you know, the big book tells us that we're normal in a lot of different ways, but when it comes to our drinking... We're incredibly dishonest and selfish. And, you know, you don't even know the level of dishonesty or selfishness until you come in and get a sponsor, and they're sure to point it out to you. You know, if you're having problems with that stuff, that's the, that's the man or woman to tell you about it. Uh, but I didn't know. It was the only normal life for me. Uh, you know, I came from, the, you know, the family with the, the alcoholic dad and the, the mom that I wish would have went into Al-Anon. Every time I hear an Al-Anon speaker, I'm just like, why didn't Millie have that? You know, she, was, she lived a torturous life for 40 years. And uh, they finally split up when I think I was in my mid-40s. My sister was almost 50. And we're like, did you have to wait until we got old enough? Like, well, <laughs> you were going through this hell for years. I don't know what, uh, what that was about. Uh, but I wish Millie would have had an Al-Anon background because she could have definitely used it. You know, It was a tough life. You know, We saw things we shouldn't see. We heard things we shouldn't hear. You had to break up fights. You had to talk to the cops. You had to, you know try to keep your dad from killing the neighborhood's dog because it was barking and all those good things that come with that. And it always gave you that inference that your house was different. And I hated the word normal growing up. Oh, they're normal over there. You know, they're normal over there. Not our house. We had like yellow lines parked in front so the emergency vehicles could come and go as they needed to. Um, my sister's a few years older than me. She was a, she was a stone cold drug addict and 
dated the Hells Angels, so then let you know if any parent wasn't home in my house, there was a lot of bikes in the yard, you know, so it was a crazy place to grow up. Uh, small town, Staten Island, getting bigger every day, but back then it was a trusting world. It was, it was all good. And, you know, I hung tough with those feelings of not being good enough, those feelings of being judged, those feelings of being different, you know, trying to act the way that I thought you thought I wanted to act. Like, I didn't even know how to act, right? Like, I couldn't even pull that off. I had to think, like, who am I with? Am I with the athletes? I, I got to try to do this. Am I with this, you know, the jocks at school or the, or the, or the womanizers? I got to try to play this part. And I just never felt like I fit. And then you couldn't have anybody at the house because you never knew what was going on in the house. So you were embarrassed about your home life. And it just set me apart. You know? And I hung tough as long as I could. But at 11, I found alcohol and all bets were off. I heard somebody call it the magical elixir of life. I love that. Alcohol does for me what I can't do for myself. It puts me in the moment. It puts me in the day. I'm no longer thinking about what I did last weekend or whatever, what, I, you know, what money I don't have to pay the bill. I'm a guy that goes out with financial fears to the bar and spends my whole paycheck buying people I don't really like or whatever, drinks all night, and now I'm that much more in the hole. But boy, did I have fun that night. And I did that for a real long time. But that first night that I drank, I was different than my friends. Uh, now, I don't know it to the level of after reading the big book with a sponsor and, and finding out about the the allergy to alcohol and the mental obsession and the spiritual malady, which for me is huge. I grew up with a tightness of chest. I don't know if I had anxiety at attacks as a kid, but I'm thinking that's what they were uh, because I can physically feel fear come up in me, and, and it's, it's overwhelming. It makes me do a lot of things I don't want to do, fight, yell, steal, those type of things, and I have no control over that. But... Uh, like I said, it was a trusting world on Staten Island. And, you know, the butcher used to total up your, your, your bill on the bag and you have the little pencil behind his head and he'd just hand you the bag and say, hey, tell your mom I'll see you Friday. Like, you didn't even need cash, you know? So when these two guys, Jimmy and Jimmy, yes, it was an Italian neighborhood, uh, said, hey, Tommy, we're going to go get beers tonight. They were a few years older than me. Are you in? I said, I'm in. They said, they're going to need some money. No problem. Start rifling pockets in the house. I, mean, I was stealing and lying before I drank. I have all the isms of alcoholism before I ever picked up alcohol. So I got a few bucks. <clears throat> we forged a letter. Uh, please let uh, Tom buy uh, three quarts of Miller and a pack of Marlboro. <laughs> Millie. <Yes. laughs> we walk in, as we're walking down to get these beers, there was this junkie in our neighborhood, Glenn. Now, nowadays it's pretty commonplace to see this in all the cities and everything, right? But back then, the junkies knew their place. They went to the park. You know, they went in abandoned buildings. Like, they weren't out on the open using it as a toilet the way they do now, you know. And he was there, and he's catching one of those nods where his head's almost touching the back of his butt, you know. And, then, and he yells across the street, hey, where are you guys going? And we said, we're going to get beers. He said, drink them warm through a straw. You'll get messed up quicker. We're following those directions. <laughs> you know. I mean, you come in here 25 years later and somebody says, son, get a, get a sponsor, get a home group, do these 12 steps. You're like, nah, nah, I got this. But that junkie, you know, he, that's my life's coach. I'm following him to the death of hell right there, you know. And, uh, and we did that. We got straws with them. And the girl that took the note from us looked at us like, you want straws? <laughs> Your mother uses straws? Oh, she's got a problem. I don't know. You know. So we did that, and we, and we got messed up. And I'll date myself. It was 1970 when I was 11 years old. And, uh, I had a boombox. Anybody remember boomboxes? It was an eight-track player. <laughs> the big album that year was Neil, Neil Young, uh, Harvest. And uh, The Needle and the Damage Done was a big song. And we sang that poorly as we got drunk. And it was just great. With a borough of parks, right? Not like the wilderness you have down here, but we got some trees, right? So we would go in the woods, and, and that's how we did it. We used to have the drinking gloves for when it got cold and light fires. And that's what we were doing that night. And, uh, but I drank differently than those two other guys that first night. And uh, I drank mine really fast. I got really... I hit that place... Nice. And I just overshot it. I always overshoot nice. I go right to sloppy, real quick. 
And these guys were putting their cap on their beers and they're tucking it in the weeds. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? That's like alcohol abuse to me. You don't save stuff, right? And they said, Tom, it's Friday night, tomorrow, Saturday. We've got to have something. I'll steal more money. Give me that. And I push the smaller kid down. I grab his and I start chugging it. And I'm all sloppy like I always get. And, uh, but I made like a tactical error there. I went after the smaller kid first. So after I downed his half-quarter beer, now I'm hammered. I mean, this is the first time I'm really drinking. So I go after the bigger kid. He throws me a beating. Uh, I wake up. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning. Now, those of you, I don't know if you, you have the streetlight thing here, but you better be home when the streetlights go on. In my neighborhood, or you're getting your butt kicked, you know? I didn't even know where my stoop was, to be honest. No, I woke up at 1 o'clock. I got a fat lip. I got a cigarette burned. I don't even smoke cigarettes. Cigarettes were for those guys. Uh, I had my Yes jacket on, my favorite band, you know, the, the jeans jacket and uh, long hair, you know, the whole bit. And uh, that next morning, I started to play my favorite game of alcoholic 20 questions. You know, what happened last night? What did we do? Anybody else get hurt besides me? Anybody got my boombox? You know, I'm just trying to fill in the clues here, you know. And, uh, but that was it. I was a blackout drinker from the beginning, and I couldn't stop drinking once, you, once I put alcohol in my system. I have no control over it at all. No power control or choice over whether I'm going to drink or stop. And I had brief periods of stopping drinking, but I just can't stay stopped. Something, what I know now to know to be that spiritual malady, makes sobriety too painful for me. My mind is too busy. I need something to quiet that down, or else I go insane. And uh, I remember always thinking I was crazy. I remember good therapeutic people and, and priests and, and guidance counselors and everybody. They would, you know, they would try to help me, but they weren't one of us. They didn't talk to me on the language of the heart the way that we do to each other. And they would say, you know, Tommy, you, you got that really dysfunctional family. And, you know, you, you had a really crazy childhood. You know, you're probably drinking to suppress those things. Fast forward some years in Alcoholics Anonymous and a sponsor, and the only thing dysfunctional about my family was the way I tried to overmanage it and control everybody and to make everybody want to do what they needed to do to make me feel okay. And the only thing crazy about my childhood is it lasted 35 years. <laughs> that's, that's, that's about the worst of that. Those people had me wrong. You guys know me, but they, they had it wrong. So I think it's a fair interpretation that you need to know the man you asked to come down here and actually paid for my flight, which I still can't get over. <laughs> but I'll be brief. Over the next 23 years, uh, I was not a good man. I wasn't even a good boy. At 17 years old, my 16-year-old girlfriend got pregnant, and we put that boy up for adoption. His name is Matthew. I've never met him. He's 47 years old now. I'm on every website out there, but it was the conditions of the courts and things that we would never go look for him. That's a tough one. I know. I pray for him every night. I have a letter in my jewelry box with a couple of pictures of him when he was born. If he ever, some good-looking Norwegian Viking dude shows up at my door, I'm ready for him. My sponsors talk me through this, you know. But then in uh, 1985, uh, I thought maybe marriage would, would help me and, you know, I'd slow down. My friends were graduating college. They were getting married. They were having children. So I said, okay, I'll try to, you know, I'll do the marriage thing. Okay, my girlfriend was pregnant again, but, you know, <laughs> details, details. And, and uh, so we got married. And the alcoholic you have in front of you, I walked out on her when she was eight months pregnant, never to see that boy for eight years. And uh, tortured me. See, when I started drinking, I drank to loosen up. I, dr I drank to just get rid of that tightness of chest. At the end of my drinking, I had to drink. I had to drink. Those thoughts of things that I did, and I'm only giving you the tip of the iceberg. I stole money from my grandmother when she was dying of cancer. The one woman who loved me like nothing. She, she was my first concept of a higher power in AA. That's how tight grandma was. And I lied to her. The last things I said to her was, no, grandma, I didn't take that money. She would have given me anything I wanted. But that's how I turned out to be at 16 years old. It was horrible. I had to drink. I could not stop drinking. I could not put those feelings down without it. And it went on like that and just hurting people throughout, hurting my mother, my father, everybody that loved me. Uh, forget it, ladies. If you were silly enough to fall for me, because I could make you fall in love with me. I'm real good on the first few dates. 
I just don't know what the hell to do with you afterwards. And I'm not man enough to tell you I don't love you or you're getting in the way of my drinking, so I'll just behave so deplorably that you'll break up with me. When I did my first relationship inventory uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it was 23 names. Substantial relationships, they said. I said, what is substantial? Uh, How about you knew their last name, Tom? Simple enough? I said, okay, I got that. So there was 23 names down there. And if you asked me, I would honestly tell you, Tom, why can't you stay in a relationship more than a year? I don't know. I always date the crazy ones. And that was a legitimate answer. But when you write it 23 times and you see you're that one common denominator, that flipped that inventory to, oh my God, how did they stay with me as long as they did? And that's hard stuff to look at. But not if you got a great sponsor, and I was blessed to do to have that. But, you know, I did an experiment in, in 1990. Uh, I got arrested for my second DWI in uh, 87, and I remained alcohol-free for three years. Now, I was on a little marijuana maintenance program and some other substances, but I never got arrested smoking a joint. I always get arrested when I drink. So uh, I did that, and I landed a real good job in New York City as an engineer in a very coveted uh, high school. And, and so I said, let me take a little vacation, celebrate this. I'll come back, start the new job. I had a new girlfriend at the point. Nobody knows I drink. So I said, I, I booked a trip to a place in Jamaica called Hedonism. Uh, <laughs> not a good choice. Yeah. Somebody, one of, one of the ladies was saying, I never make good choice. I never made a good choice. When it, when it came to my alcoholism, they were all bad. And uh, I went down there and just, the beast got let, let out of the cage. Eight days, I don't think I slept. I was drunk the whole time doing all sorts of other things. I could have Jamaican kids. I, I have no idea. <laughs> Yo, daddy, man. Ari, boy, Ari. I'm really not ready for that showing up in my house, but you, you, you never know. You never know what the lives we lead here. But it was a period of time where I tried to control and enjoy my drinking. It's impossible. If there's anybody that's new here that's trying to control drink, just stop. Just stop. And I'm not going to tell you, keep coming back. I'm going to tell you, stay. Save yourself the five years that I had from 1990 to 1995 because they were hell. They were hell. And they went something like this. I would go out on a Friday night after working hard, doing a lot of overtime. I had money. I had the apartment. Everything was going fairly well materially. But in my head, it was just getting worse and worse. And I'd say, you know, you're making more than you need to about this alcoholism. Maybe you can have a few drinks. Right? The mental obsession would get me. And I don't stand a chance. So I'd go up to the neighborhood bar and I'd sit in a stool. The clubs were way beyond me at that point. I was 35. It was pathetic being in a club at 35. I mean, you're just the oldest dude there. It's, it's, it's horrible. And you're drinking. These kids ain't drinking the way you're drinking. You know, it's, it's bad. It's, it, you're not going to do that. So I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in the old Blue Manor, it was called. You know, a gin mill. Sawdust on the floor. Smells like beer and urine. You know, my kind of place. Shuffleboard thing at the end. Three sixty-five-year-old men, and we're watching like the outlaw Jesse Wales on Sunday night. It's great. You know, that's where my life is at thirty-five. And uh, I'd go up there, and back then they'd give you a short glass of beer with a shot. You know, as a chaser. So I'd get my Jack Daniels. I'd get my beer. I'd start popping them down. And I, I would just drink with these old men. And if the old men gave me a hard time, I'd just beat up a 65-year-old man. <laughs> I was 35, in great shape. I was going to the gym all the time. I was like the king of the blue, blue manor. <laughs> it gets a little worse, too. Uh, but, you know, if a young lady came in, uh, maybe she was lost, maybe she was one of us, and she was seeking out a place that a husband wouldn't find her or something. I'm your guy. I'm your guy. And you didn't have to be a young lady. Just a woman would be good. And uh, I had an apartment right down the street. And and what would happen is I'd be able to pull myself away from the bar, a little buzz on, grab a six-pack to go, have a romantic evening with this lady. I would wake up in the morning. I had money. My car was in the driveway. I would take her out to breakfast. I opened the car door. My grandmother taught me, well, open the car door. It'll get the number, the whole bit. They'd go in their home, I'd throw the number out the window, and, and go on my way. And then Saturday would come. No consequences of Friday. So I'd go back up there. And I'd sit in that same stool, have that same Jack Daniels, that same beer. But no young lady or no woman would come in. 
So I would go out, and I love Bill's terminology, I would seek out the most sordid places on earth. We've got some sordid places in New York, believe me. If you want to look, if you know where to look, you know what doors to knock on, you're going to get sordid on, on steroids, you're going to get it, you know. You can get any freak show you want out there. And, uh, you know, and uh, I, would, I would do that, and I would wake up, and it would be like Tuesday. I didn't call into work Monday or Tuesday, sick. Uh, my car's missing. The drug dealer's got it for collateral. I'm peeking through the blinds to look where I am, and oh no, I got a cross-dressing dude in the bed with me. How'd that happen? Again. That's why you threw me off, bro. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You threw me off. So those five years kind of went like, how long are you going to stay sober based on the debacle of your drinking, right? You have a car accident. Well, everybody has car accidents, right? You've got to have two or three DWIs to even get in this joint. So, you know, everybody does that. Ah, that's two weeks. Everybody does that. You beat up the 65-year-old man. All right, I didn't go back to the bar for three or four weeks. I felt bad about that. I had to buy him a drink when I saw him. Waking up with Alex, that was about two months, three months. Five years like that. The mental torture, I can't tell you what it was like. And then I'd have to go into this engineer's job and make like I'm okay. The dregs that I would hang out with doing all sorts of things at night, knew where I worked, they would come by the job and ask me for money. It was just a I can't even tell you how horrible it was. It, it, it just, it's, it was bad. You'll have to take my word for it. And uh, the last thing on earth I ever wanted to do was go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thought you guys were a bunch of losers. And uh, But God and, and the New York City the Police Department and, and our court systems and all had other plans for me. And uh, one night I was doing that, went out, picked up a guy in after hours. Uh, it was a payday. Um, saw my local guy, got what I wanted, some non-conference approved party favors. And somehow during the night I put a loaded handgun in my belt and I got caught for my third DWI. But when they found the gun, the arrest got real serious. A young cop, 21 years old, had his foot on my face. I was about three blocks from my, the high school. I was going to go start the boilers in. And he said, if you move, I'll blow your effing brains out. And I started crying. I had a tear coming down my eyes. And I said, you'd be doing me a favor. I can't do this anymore. And uh, the worst night of my life turned out to be the best night. Fear sobered me a bit. I did not want to go to jail. I turn into a three-year-old girl that you just took their favorite doll away from when I go to jail. I've been there a few times. Like, Joey, did you say you do you prison well? I don't prison well, bro. That that door closes, and I'm like inside now. On the outside, I'm, you know, back then I was like two thirty, good shape. I'm like, yeah, what? Inside, I'm like, I gotta get out of here. Where's my mother? You know, I'm, it's bad. It's bad. I am not a tough guy inside. And uh, so the fear sobered me a bit there, and. Uh, my lawyer said, if you get in any trouble while we're going through these court proceedings, there's nothing I can do. It's a mandatory year in jail for the gun. You're going to have to go away. So the only thing I did was I, I, I went to the outpatient program. We got an out, intensive outpatient program. We tried to do that, but I was not going to AA. I would not do that. They suggested it, but they had me there five nights a week. Uh, I have like three graduation certificates. I could teach those courses now if anybody's interested in alcohol awareness, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, one time I went to a, 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 my father and I got a DWI like five days away from each other. We had to go to the same class. <laughs> He's bombed in the class. He's retired. He don't need his license back. I need my license, Bob. Come on. Cut it out. And uh, we had to watch a movie called Not My Father's Son. <laughs> I went up to him afterwards. I said, did you see that? He said, what a bunch of BS that was. I said, you could call that our house. Are you kidding me? Clancy used to call this a, a disease of perception, you know, and my dad just didn't see it. He didn't see it. Uh, you know, but what happened was they cut me back on those, those uh, outpatient things and everything, and I tried AA. I didn't like AA. I did 10 months through outpatient and maybe a few AA meetings. Uh, and then I met a guy, John, and, and he became my first sponsor. 
He said, look, I got seven years. I don't know what I can give you, but if you need to call me, call me. So I told everybody, I got a sponsor. You know, get off my back. I got a sponsor. Call <laughs> you AA police that tell me I need a sponsor. <laughs> and I would call him, and he was a great guy, and he could listen. And uh, he got me to speak on my one-year anniversary. Uh, he got a cake. He let me celebrate at his home group because I had none. John told me the most powerful lesson I've ever learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. Two years later, I had moved on to another, another person. John put a gun in his mouth and blew his brains out of untreated alcoholism. You can die in these rooms not doing anything. Because if you have demons like we have demons, some of us, you can't live with that sober. You can put it down so many. You can go to so many meetings. You can do a lot of service. But without some type of spiritual answer, it was too much for John. And he was a good man. He was a good man. So I ended up going through everything and, and uh, going to work. Some of you older folks will remember we had a, 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 a policy in the military when gays started to enroll in the military. They said, don't ask, don't tell. And that's what the unions told me about the job. If they don't ask you about the arrest, don't tell them. But I told a few people about the arrest, close friends that were in boss's positions and things like that. And I went to work every day thinking I was going to get fired thinking every day that the court case was going to go, oh, I forgot to tell you, my lovely ex-wife came out of the woodwork and wanted a skin and paternity test and eight, months, eight, eight years of back child support. And I said to her, oh, your timing's great. <laughs> now you got to do this? So that was my early recovery. It was lawyers' offices, it was parole's offices, it was court appearances, it was outpatient, and it was AA. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that. I had to put my one foot in front of the other. I had some place to go all the time. And now I'm starting to get the accountability of AA and the old-timers. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big step guy. I love the big book, and I've been working with guys for 26 years. But don't ever discount our fellowship and how strong it is because those first 18 months, there was no step work in Tom T's life. I found God in a diner sitting with old men that would sit with me until 2.30 in the morning on a work night. Just because I had that newcomer nonsense. You know what's going on. You don't know what they did to me. Blah, blah, blah. I heard a great thing in Alabama last week. We were in a sponsorship weekend. And the guy says, my sponsor, when I'm complaining, or talking about somebody not treating me fairly, or I'm in fear, he makes me do my whiny voice. <laughs> so, okay, put the whiny voice. Well, she didn't tell me that she loved me. Like, it was hysterical. And he had an Alabama accent, so I was dying. It was great. I'm going to use that when I get home, for sure. My guys are going to be whining. Uh, but, you know, it, it was just so busy and everything, and, and I lost that job. I was going for a promotion, and as I was going to go take it, I, uh, I got the letter that they were investigating me further, and I couldn't work in the New York City school system anymore, and I was devastated. And I went to a men's meeting. I took it hostage, and I told them that, I, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm 18 months clean, and this ain't working, and you guys told me to stand up for myself and go for the promotion. It's your fault, and, you know, the whole thing that we do. And three solid members of Alcoholics Anonymous saw a young member with no with no spiritual background at all or anything, just on the outskirts of Alcoholics Anonymous. They came and they circled me. I call those guys to this day the ninjas of sponsorship. I never saw these old bastards coming. <laughs> but they were like my age back then. I was 36. And uh, one guy's name was Keep It Simple Richard. He was a retired fireman. Another guy was uh, Lucky George. He was a bald-headed bookie covered in tats from Brooklyn. And the other guy was Cocaine Vinny. <laughs> He's a little businessman type, always neatly pressed and neat and orderly. And they said, God wants you on the golf course tomorrow. We're picking you up at 8 o'clock. I said, didn't you hear what I said? I don't have a job. I don't have any money to play golf. They said, we didn't ask you for a financial statement. We asked you to play golf. We'll see you at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and what I didn't know is Lucky George had been through a big book workshop, a Joe and Charlie workshop on Staten Island, and this boy was on fire. And he was on fire with the facts about himself. And he was easily able to win me over in less than a half hour in that golf cart. And he said things to me that I had never heard in my first 18 months here. He said, I promise you, you never have to feel the way you do today if you're willing to participate in your recovery. Are you willing to come to my house twice a week? He was retired. I was fired. <laughs> you know, I had time. I had time. And he said, I'll cook dinner. We'll read the big book. He says, I don't have a program. The book has a program. We're going to follow what it is. You're going to do what the book tells you. I'm not going to tell you to do anything that that book doesn't say or something that I haven't done. That was attractive to me. But i got to be honest with you. I heard free dinner. <laughs> I just got laid off. I was like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. 
And I had a, a, a miraculous experience with George. Miraculous. You know, I've, I've read the book with people for like the last 26 years. And God, as soon as somebody's finishing in 11 or 12, another one shows up. Our sponsor, Joe, used to tell me, Tom, God knows you're sick. He needs you to stay in the book. <laughs> and it's been that way. And this book comes alive each and every time I read it. But that first time, I remember reading the doctor's opinion with George, and my mouth must have fell open. And George said, what's the matter? I said, I can't believe they wrote this book about me in 1939. <laughs> he made it my book. He put my name in sentences. We turned statements into questions. We highlighted, we underlined, we double-starred. We did all the anal retentive stuff we were doing in the 90s. Uh, and it was very mechanical, but it produced a spiritual spirit experience that has not left me since. It has faded a little bit with my lack of participation, and I've had to come bring myself back in. Uh, but we went through those steps in about three and a half months. Uh, Wrote my inventory in four, uh, nine days, start to finish. Shared that right away. Lied in my fifth step. I couldn't tell George I was a deadbeat dad. I couldn't tell George I woke up with a dude. I didn't do that. Couldn't tell him about my grandmother. That wasn't happening. Or about Matthew. Or that I was a deadbeat dad with Brett. So I took those pages out and I put them under my chair and I went up to the spiritual mountain with George. And we prayed, and I gave him about three and a half hours of my resentments, my fears, and my relationships. And he says, is that it? I said, that's it, George. I'm still lying like crazy. And he said, well, listen, I just want to tell you, if you left anything out, when you're getting quiet with God for an hour, make sure you call me. You're only as sick as your secrets here. You're doing great work. Don't hold yourself back, Tom. Don't be afraid. And I'm like, he knows. <laughs> How's he know? I'm a real good liar. I can blow up a lie detector test. I'm good. How does he know? So I'm walking down the mountain, and George stays up on the mountain, and it's like he's a laser. His eyes are peeling on my head. And, and I'm like, tell him, don't tell him, tell him, don't tell him. They're the angel and the devil are on my shoulders. And I go down, and I put my key in the car. It was a warm day, but I felt a rush of heat come up under my thing. And I know there's people in this room that have had these type of experiences where you feel a breeze when the, the windows are closed, something happens and I just said, whoa and I grabbed these pages and I got out of my car and I said, George, wait up and George went come on up kid, let's finish this thing and I gave him my ten worst, most of which I've shared with you today it has absolutely no power over me today and I've been able to use that to talk to men who think that they're the worst thing on earth if it's got a name, it's because somebody did it before you. I hate to burst some of it. Marvin, maybe your bubble. You're not that special, Junior. All right? But what a relief to know that. And when I was done, George hugged me and he said, I'm so happy that we're going through this together. My house tomorrow for six and seven, I'm cooking pasta. He gave me a big hug. This man knew everything about me and he was inviting me back to my home. That was powerful. That was powerful. We got to eight and nine and I balked at that. I owed way too much money with the lifestyle that I, that I owed. Uh, and a lot was to mob guys and, and drug dealers and things like that. Just things I couldn't make right. I could never make right. How do I make these things right to these kids and all this stuff? And I walked for a while, but I finally got moving. And uh, I went to my family and I made amends to my mom. And if I tell you that, I'll start crying and I don't want to do that. Moms are great. I miss my mom. I went to my sister and my father in a bar because that's the only place I could get dad. And when I got done with dad, he said, don't you got to go make coffee for those assholes? <laughs> I love you, dad, you know. And, uh, you know and, uh. But then I had a letter and I had to go speak at a meeting, uh, a step meeting. And I had a letter to my grandmother at her grave. And I never went to the gravesite. I went to the wake, but I didn't go to the gravesite because I needed a few drinks at 16. You know, I couldn't go. It was about me. And uh, so I'm walking up and I parked my car. I knew the section, but I didn't know where she was. And I'm walking up and down. And I'm looking at my watch. And, and i got to get to this meeting to speak on the ninth step. There was a little fellowship story behind that, how they tricked me into speaking there. But uh, I'm walking up and down. I can't find it. And I said, ah, I'll have to tell them about the three amends I made. 
So I walk on a diagonal back to my car, and I tell you that if this podium, if, if that was my car right there, the podium was my grandmother's headstone. And I walked right into it, and like a chill went up my spine. I was like, oh, my God. And I just started bawling. And I mean bawling, like, you know, snot bubble type stuff. It was, it was not pretty. It was not pretty. And people were looking like, what's going on over there, you know? And I, I had a brief note that I wrote with my sponsor. And it was brief. He was, my sponsor was perfect for me at this time. If I had a real hardcore guy that had me do index cards and everything else, nothing wrong with that, believe me. If you're going through the steps, it's the right way. But this guy, it was just, Grandma, I am so sorry that when you passed to the next world that you saw me as the kid that I was. You gave me everything in life. You never stopped loving me. And I did not uh, deserve that. And I did not earn that from you. I know you can see me. And I know you can hear me. And I'm praying now. I'm going to make you proud of me. I love you. I couldn't get that out of my word, out of my mouth. I don't remember walking to my car. I don't remember walking to that meeting. I shared looking at a beeper. We had beepers back then. Somebody older folks. 15 minutes. I got to do 15 minutes? I'm going to do 15 minutes, right? But I had about 10 or 12 guys from Alcoholics Anonymous come up to me and say, what's, what's going on with you, man? No matter what you're doing, don't stop. You're a different guy than you were just five months ago. People notice that change in us well before I do. But in hindsight, I can point back to that moment when my outlook on life started to change. And I started to look that maybe I can clear up this wreckage. Maybe there is some things I can do here. And I'm making amends. I mean, I'm making a tear. I'm unemployed, right? I'm running around like, hey, you know, it's like, hey, Taraco's making amends. Hide, you know, like I'm pulling people out of meetings like crazy. And, you know, and I went on fire with it. And I do want to say one thing about amends. It's really nice to make most of your amends. It's a whole different level when you make all of them. Don't stop. We're, we're creatures that get to feel good. And we make some we feel good. But there's those little cautions in the book that tell us, you know, we will be amazed at half, when we're halfway through. But it does tell us that we make them all. So continue. If you have unmade amends and you're sitting, I'm sorry if I'm making you uncomfortable with this, but that's my job, you know. Um, get out there and finish them. There's a big, there's a big deal to that. And, and another level of sobriety, which you don't hold yourself back. Uh, and as I was going through, uh, George said to me, hey, Tom, don't you have to make amends to the Department of Education? Well, I was hoping the court case would be settled by then. <laughs> oh, I get it. You'd like to manipulate the outcome and fail, as you always have. Or perhaps you'd put it in God's hands. Oh, he had the corniest answers. I wanted to slap this guy so many times. And I said, okay. Put on the one suit. Go wait for the boss. Now, if this guy's here, I'm here on the, on the ladder. But he knew me because I had to talk to him six months before to explain the arrest to him. So, uh... I get there at 7 o'clock in the morning, as my sponsor told me. I didn't know the bosses come in at 10. I, I spent three hours in my head, like, oh, there's the plate glass window he's going to throw me through. And like, I don't know if you're like me. I never spiral upwards, right? I, I mean, I could get you to a worst-case scenario in 15 seconds or less. I, I mean, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, but this guy, Jimmy, comes walking in, and I said, Jimmy, uh, Tom T. And he said, I know who you are. He said, I got your case on my desk. Come on in. 80,000 employees in the Department of Education. Why you got my case on this? I'm not that bad. I'm not like John Dillinger or something, you know. Jesus. And uh, we went in there, and he sat there, and he said, what do you got? What do you, what do you want to say? I said, well, Jim, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm coming up on two years of sober, uh, being sober, and uh, I'm doing my steps. And I was not honest with you six months ago when I was here. And he said, well, that's interesting. What, what, what do you want to tell me? I said, well, I lied to you about everything except for my name. It was my gun. They were my drugs. I was driving drunk for the third time. And I said, unfortunately, I have a sponsor that tells me I have to tell you everything. <laughs> I stole time from the Department of Education. I've had parties in school buildings. I've slept through my entire shift in the boiler room, drunk as a skunk. I've punched employees in and out. I've stolen tools and supplies. I have not been a model. Uh, employee over the last 17 years. And Jim says to me, do you know I'm a deacon? I swear to God, I didn't know what a deacon was. No Google, no iPhones, 1995, 97. So he says, yeah, I, I do service in a church upstate. I'm like, okay, I've got an idea. It's with the church. You know. He said, yeah, we don't find God because things are good. He said, mine's alcohol too. I stopped drinking about eight years ago. I was like, 
I said, that's cool. He says, listen, I'm not the deciding vote whether you get your job back or not. That's what the attorneys. But if you do get it back, you come back up here and we'll talk about how you can make this right. And I said, I'll do that, Jim. I walked out of there on fire. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. A case that was so stalled in the courts and everything, they were just leading me along, and I was working side jobs to try to do it. I get a registered letter saying that they're going to hear my case, and uh, now God's got me. I mean, I'm doing the amends, and I believe God's got me. My sponsor had me do stuff like ask God to come with you. Open the car door, let God in, close the car door, (laughs) walk into an office, and there's two seats by the desk. Yes, God's here. It's going to be okay. Like, this was the mindset that I had. It was the transformation of, of faith and belief. You couldn't shake me off this. I didn't care if I got my job back at this point. I really didn't care. And I went with RAA folder. You know, the sponsor, the sponsees. I was sponsoring a couple of guys, the home group members, the counselors that I completed everything. And I gave him that. And he told me to bring my coin with me because I just got coined on two years. And these attorneys pounded me on the stand for two hours. And if you've got to see me testify in my job now, I'm a riot. You, you can't move me. I'm just like, what? I'm not going away for this. This is a joke. Like, hey, what do you want to know? You know. And, uh, but they were pounding me, and I, I answered honestly. As a proud man of integrity in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, Tom, what about the details? And I don't know. I was in a blackout. That's the problem with my drinking. I cannot drink. That's why I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just kept hitting them with the AA stuff. And I was honest. Was that your gun? Yes, it was. Why didn't you say so when you got arrested? I was drunk and I was afraid. They, I don't think these guys ever heard answers like this. I, I really don't because they, they, they were, you know, it, it was crazy. It, it was weird in the sense I've been in courts before and things like this, but I was telling them the truth. And the arbiter is looking at the AA file and all, and, and we were looking for my old union job back just so I could get a chance to start again. Uh, that was all we were asking for. The, we go out. I said, I'm going to go out and smoke a cigarette. He said, you sit right here. You're not going anywhere. So I sat with my attorney, and uh, five minutes, they call us back in. And he's like, well, I don't know what's going on there. And uh, I said, Mr. Thracker, we were highly impressed with the way you handled yourself here on the stand and, and the way that you've done everything we've asked you to do leading up to these proceedings. Uh, he said, we're, we're going to uh, give you that job back. Uh, you know, uh, we're very impressed with your AA work and the fact that you're trying to help young men uh, turn their lives around. They said, if you stay clean for another year, we're going to give you that promotion that you were going for. And since you've done everything the courts have asked, we're going to give you $17,000 in back pay. <laughs> Do you know anybody that's gotten 17000 for going through 12 steps? <laughs> so with this, the arbiter gives me a wink. And to this day, I don't know if he was one of us or is he just sweet on me, but, you know, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me. And uh, we went on and on. But, you know, that was one of my biggest fearful amends because the career was who I was, right? Later on, there was another job that came up and it was prone to bribes with the mob and everything. I'm doing real well now. Jim asked me to come up and see him. And what he told me to do is he said, you want to make 17 years right? Work honestly for 17 years. Go in early, stay late if they need you, mentor young guys, always be the guy that's there. Don't turn into a civil servant and just throw your feet back up. you got time to make up for us. I want you to work hard, and I did that. I did it gratefully, because now I had my life back, my career back, and I had AA with you. You guys are my unfair advantage. It's, there's nothing like this. This is not a weakness. I used to think you guys were a weakness. Talking to a sponsor was a weakness. Prayer was a weakness. You cannot shake me. You can't when I'm right. So I go back and I do all these things Jimmy asks me to do when another job comes up and it was prone to bribery and I come down to a tie with a guy that had 17 engineering licenses like me or 22 engineering licenses like me, 17 years in the job like me, but I got this brown spot of arrests. Jim says, give it to Taraco. If he takes any bribes, he'll drink. We'll know right away. <laughs> My biggest fear turned into a biggest plus and that guy took me on as his mentor uh, he was my mentor, and, and I was his right hand. We came up, and Jim retired about 15 years ago, and they made me the chief executive of that division. And I've had a career that's unbelievable. I am talking to them about retirement now 
and they're going to have to pay me the rest of my life. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? And, and it's just because I followed you guys. I listened to you guys. I showed up, and I, and I suited up, I showed up, and I told the truth. The easiest thing in this world to tell is the truth. You don't have to remember it. And I learned that from corny old guys smelling of cigarettes and coffee, covered in tats, using the F-bomb with God in the same sentence, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And you know, do we ever make those things right that we did when we were coming up? I don't know. But when I got into steps 10, 11, and 12, I think the first nine steps are only about 10% of our program. That just gets us up to almost human. Now, 10 and 11 and 12, we got some growing up to do, and I switched sponsors, and I went to a guy, Joe Keegan. And Joe was having an experience on the other side of town. He was 17 years sober, ready to kill himself in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, where they used to call him Angry Joe. Big beard. Looked like a lot of you guys down here. <laughs> By the way, you talk funny. And... Uh, <laughs> Big beard, food in it, you know, the, the, the Harley Davidson jacket and chaps, and he would come into the meetings and he'd share for 15 minutes about garbage that he created, you know. But then all of a sudden, he's going through the steps with this guy, Mike, I'm going through with George, and I'm seeing him at meetings. All of a sudden, he's got the little boy's haircut, he's got wire-rimmed glasses, no chaps, nothing. I think he even showered. It was amazing. And he's talking about going to school to be a Montessori kindergarten teacher. And I'm like, I mean, I'm having a, a good experience over here, but this is sick. But then he started talking about writing nightly inventory in an 11th step that I really didn't get from George. And I asked him to be my sponsor. And that led 24 years of the best relationship I've ever had with a man in my life. More than my father, more than anybody. Joe knew everything about me. He heard probably about six or seven fifth steps, uh, countless nightless in, night, nightly inventories. Tuesday night at 9.30 was my call. He moved to Waynesville, Ohio. Broke my heart. But he helped some of the sick here. And uh, I never missed those calls. I look forward to those calls, even when I knew they were going to be uncomfortable. But I want to tell you a little bit how he makes that right, how God makes these things right. From a deadbeat dad somebody with no commitment treated women poorly my whole life God says it's a guy like Joe <laughs> the wheels came off on my program of recovery in about nine years I had a second surrender that was I think worse than when I came in and I wrote an inventory Joe would tell you at a level that I'd never written before uh, I was watching porn I was uh, dating three girls named Lisa on Match.com. <laughs> what started to go down as a sober golf outing in Atlantic City, I was leaving my golf clubs home and charging up $5,000 in gambling debts every week or two. I moved the craziest girl into my, from the home group into my home. <laughs> I should have known when I saw the toothbrush show up. But, yeah. <laughs> And the cops were at the house. It was bad. But then my mother and father died 35 days apart from each other. My son started to do heroin. And my life was in shambles. And, uh, Joe saw me through all of that. And we got back to, to work here in these 12 steps and helping others in such a way that I have not stopped since. And I know that if I do stop or even slow down, that that's what awaits me. It's a caged beast. It's not gone. I have to do these things. I forget which of our lady speakers were talking about, you know, three legacy group and doing all three sides. <laughs> I said to her afterwards, with your story, you have to. <laughs> you don't have a choice. Like, you know, it's that an insane asylum. What do you want? But then God sent me Cheryl. And uh, he sent me my best friend. Never saw it coming. I swore off dating in AA. When I saw her, I said, oh, no, that's trouble. Not, not going there, and then like a moth to a hot flame, you know. I went, but when I brought that to Joe, Joe said, you don't lay your hands on that girl and tell me, until you tell me you can take full responsibility for her three children. I said, really? He said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. I'm not listening to any more of your inventory like that where you're hurting people and not caring. 
And I said, that's a little harsh. Uh, tell me. He didn't speak that way. The guys could vouch. He was a quiet-spoken man. I said, okay, Joe. That led Cheryl and I into a 14-month courtship where I actually, like, I didn't go to Cheryl's dad. Cheryl's dad passed away and say, hey, can I, you know, hook up with your daughter? But I had to go to my sponsor and said, I'm telling you, I can take responsibility for her kids. And he said, well, then go at it. You're a grown-ass man. What are you asking me for? I can go to my, you know. And I said, all right. And Cheryl and I started dating, and what a wonderful courtship, and we're together 17 years later, and we're both two-time losers before this. We laugh every time we have an anniversary. It's like, hey, we're beating them all. You know? <laughs> but she's got three kids that call me dad. We got three wonderful grandkids. That son that I ran out on, he's eight years clean with us. He lived with us for a while. He moved in with me when he was 12 because his mother couldn't handle him anymore. God makes these things right. You just got to put yourself in a position to be able to handle what's going to come your way because they're strapping, young man. It's coming your way. But you'll be ready for it with us. You're with us. You're with us. You're going to be fine. But, you know, folks, we have a lot of fun here and we talk a lot of things, but I'm sure Kentucky is just the same as Staten Island with these fentanyl and all this garbage that's out there now. And, you know, in 1995, if you relapsed, you lost your job, you lost your wife, maybe you fell in front of a train and you walked with a limp or you came in twitching a little bit, but, you know, but you were alive. When they relapse now on Staten Island, they die. And they're my kids, my, my friend's kids. It breaks my heart. You know, they think I'm that surly old guy at the home group now. And they say, you know, I never thought you liked me. I said, it's not that I don't like you. While you're looking at Facebook or whatever you're doing in the back of the room, I know you don't stand a chance here. And I don't want to get close to you because you're too heartbreaking when you die. Oh, post, post, oh, what a good guy, RIP, on Facebook and let me see it and you're in my home group. You're going to hear about, can I talk to you in the kitchen? How come you didn't take his phone away from him? How come you didn't walk him through these 12 steps? Oh, you took him sober bowling. Oh, that's good. He's dead. Stop posting that nonsense on social media. Have some respect. I don't know if that's my place to do it, but that's how I feel. I lose a little part of me when these guys that I get to know and like die. This is life and death. We have a lot of fun here. But I never do. Look, I will talk football with the guys at home group, and I will... You know, look at the girls and kid around with the girls. They call me dad now. It's not really a good role for me, but, you know, whatever, whatever. But I'm telling you, Joe Keegan taught me that to set up that home group like it was going to be somebody's first meeting, because it is, keep your eyes trained on that front door for that new person that doesn't know where the big books are or where the bathrooms are, and you greet them and you give them your number, you take their number, you don't stalk them, but you reach out. Remember how hard it was to call somebody the first time? So how about a nice little text? Hey, how you doing? I was thinking about you today. We got to stay busy here, man. You folks and myself are crafted with our pain and our suffering to help these people in no way that nobody else can. And it's our responsibility to do that. So we have fun here, but we bring newcomers with us. And we see what a joyous life it can be when we just get out of the way and let God do it. I'm so grateful to be here with you folks. My name is Tommy T. I'm an alcoholic. God bless you.